Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Kelly, for leading us, and thanks to all of you for participating so uh, fully, so beautifully in the singing of those hymns. It's great to be able to be here together and praise the Lord together in one another's presence. About a thousand years before Jesus came, a man named Asaph was having a faith crisis. It's not that Asaph wasn't a believer, because he was. In fact, he was one of the uh, musicians appointed by King David to play on harps and lyres and cymbals and to praise with shouts of joy when the Ark of the Covenant was taken back from the Philistines who had captured it and when it was brought back to Jerusalem. He was one of the ones who led in that great celebration. He ministered daily before the tabernacle, so he was experienced and dedicated to worship. Later, after Solomon built the temple and it was dedicated, Asaph was one of the singers who participated in the dedication of the temple of the Lord. Also, we know Asaph is an author of Psalms 50, as well as Psalm 73 through 83. And there were a group of singers in Nehemiah's time, much later than Asaph's day, who were named the sons of Asaph after him, according to Nehemiah 7, verse 44. So Asaph was anything but a novice when it came to faith, and he was anything but a novice when it came to worship. But his faith was struggling. You know, people experienced in faith struggle too, just like people who are new in faith. In verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 73, Asaph describes his struggle this way. In verse 1, he states his, his basic conviction, conviction. This is what he believes. He believes this, that God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. That's what he believes. That's his basic conviction. God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But, verse 2, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled my steps had nearly slipped. Here's this man who was so experienced in faith, so experienced in worship. Uh, here's this man who firmly believed that God is good to Israel, and yet he said that his feet had almost stumbled, they had almost slipped. And we wonder why, and he tells us in verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You know, for ages and generations, believers have struggled with the question of why do bad things happen to good people? Asaph's question is the opposite of that. His question is, why do so many good things happen to bad people? Why does it appear that the, 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 sometimes the worst of people seem to get it the best in life? Why does it seem that all the good things come their way and somehow the bad things seem to bypass them? And so in verses 4 to 12, he describes how, how good and how easy the wicked have it in this life. He said, they have no suffering. They have no struggles. They are not stricken like the rest of men. It just doesn't happen to them in the same way. They're kind of in a protected category. And, and different things happen to them. And all of this in spite of the fact, he says, that they're proud, arrogant, violent, and profane, and yet people honor them. They behave in worthless ways, but people honor them anyway. And then he said in verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. At least that's what Asaph thought. And thinking that way soured him on his attempts to live a good life. 
You know, when your thinking gets skewed, your life's going to get skewed. Paul tells us to uh, devote our, our lives, our bodies, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, and to set our minds on the things that are above. Because until we set our minds in the right way, we're not going to live in the right way. And so uh, Asaph's thinking, because it was so soured, was having an effect on his life. Look at verses 13 and 14. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence, for all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. He said, I don't have much motivation for this good life. I don't have much motivation to try to live the right way because every day, all day long, every morning, it's the same thing. I'm facing all of this trouble. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like your efforts at, at living the right way were not really bearing any fruit? They weren't really accomplishing anything, and yet there were crummy people all around you who are living crummy lives and, and maybe even evil lives, wicked lives, and good things are happening to them. And so you just see the disconnect there, and you say, something's wrong here. Well, that's what Asaph was seeing. He was looking at his own life and saying, why is it that I try so hard and it doesn't seem to get anywhere, and these people try so hard to be evil, and they seem to get all the good things in life? Now, I don't know what was going on in Asaph's life that made him feel so bad. I don't know what it was that was making him question his faith in that way, but it must have been, it must have been pretty bad. In fact, Asaph says if he had verbalized that, if he had verbalized what he thought, and, and by the way, you know, there is a school of thought that says if you feel it, say it. That's not a good idea. Uh, that's not a good idea. That's social media, by the way. Uh, that's not a good idea. Asaph said if he had verbalized all of that, he said, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. I would have betrayed the whole generation because what I would have been saying wouldn't have been true. So he just kept it to himself, and he tried to work it out in his mind. But he said, I found it a wearisome task. It was wearing him out. It was wearing him out just thinking about it and trying to figure out how and why it is that rotten people seem to have it so good and good people seem to have it so rotten. Well, that's where he was in his faith struggle. But then something dramatic happened to Asaph. He went to church. He went to church. He said, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. When he went to worship, when he went into the sanctuary of God and he experienced worship, he began to see things not as he felt, not as he thought they were, but as they really are. He began to see things that way. Now, we don't know what it was, but something about that worship experience changed his perspective in a dramatic way. So he began to see things in an entirely different light. And so that, that 17th verse is transitional there. Uh, leading up to that, he's telling you how, how bad he, badly he saw things, how badly he felt, how worn out he was with the struggle, trying to figure it out why the good things happen to the bad people and why it doesn't seem that his efforts to live a good life are doing anything until he went into the sanctuary of the Lord. Then 
He saw things the way they really were. Verses 18 through 20, instead of seeing the wicked as unnaturally blessed, he says, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. In other words, worship changed Asaph's perspective. It changed his perspective entirely. He began to see things as they really are and not as he thought they were. When he laid all of those concerns on the altar of God, it altered his perspective of reality. It enabled him to see reality finally instead of living inside of his own head and seeing things wrongly. Worship changed his perspective not just about the wicked, but also about himself and even about God. He gets a different perspective on all three, the wicked, himself, and God. First of all, what does he find out about the wicked? They may be getting by with their arrogant and evil ways now, he says, but they won't forever. In his own good time, God will bring them down. And we don't need to worry about that, about when or how that will happen. We just know that God will bring them into judgment. I thought a lot about that in recent months, about Vladimir Putin. You know, I prayed a lot about that. I'd love to see God take him out. And I don't really care how. And maybe that's wrong in me. But that, that's where I am. But I'm willing to let God do it his own way in his own time. I trust him to do that. I think back to the book of Daniel. And about all those kings who rose up in arrogance against God. And God brought every one of them down. He didn't bring them down in a week or five months or sometimes five years. But he brought them down in his own good time. And he'll take care of Putin too. I don't know how, I don't know when. I'd love for it to be today. I'd love for it to be on February 25th. But I know that God will do it. And that's what Asaph began to see, that God will act. He said, when you rouse yourself, and that's God's decision, that's not our decision. God will rouse himself when he rouses himself. But worship deepens our trust in God so that we accept his ways even when we don't understand them even when we don't understand. So we get a different perception of the wicked. We also get a different perception of God, as we've already been saying. I wonder what Asaph may have heard that day when he went into the sanctuary of God. I wonder what, the, what it was. Maybe there was some reading from the, the scriptures or something that touched his heart that really changed his, his way of thinking. Something reminded him that God is not, not ever, unjust. He isn't ever unjust. See, that's what he'd been thinking because he thought this isn't just, this isn't right, this isn't fair. It's not going the way I think it ought to go. I'm not getting what I think I ought to get. The wicked are getting what I think, what I think I ought to get. And somehow this isn't just. But he, he began to change his thinking and to be made to realize that God is not ever unjust. Will not all the judge of the earth do right, Scripture says. 
And that truth was pressed upon his mind. I don't know from that verse or not, but that truth was pressed upon his mind. Something about that experience of worship reminded him that God always does right. And we don't ever have to wonder about that. We don't ever have to wonder on any given day at any given moment of our lives, is God going to do the right thing? The only question is, am I going to do the right thing? That's the real question. But we know that God is going to do the right thing. Also, we know that the world is never out of God's control. He has set the wicked in slippery places. Notice that language. He didn't just say they come into slippery places or they fall into slippery places. He said God has put them there. God has set them in slippery places so that eventually they're going to fall. And eventually, he says, he makes them fall to ruin so that they are swept away by untimely terrors. All of a sudden, something Something happens to them, and they're gone. You know, we talk about sometimes accidents of history. In one sense, there aren't accidents of history. It is true, as Ecclesiastes 5 says, time and chance happens to them all. There is such a thing as that in human existence. But in the broader picture, the broader picture of things, it isn't just about politics, and it isn't just about world events. It's about the activities of God. Go read the book of Daniel. Go read the, all of the prophets. It's about what God is doing. And God will take care of the wicked. There are not accidents of history. God does that. So Asaph changed his perspective about God, but then he also changed his perspective about himself. And instead of throwing that pity party that had been rolling around in his head, he realized something wonderful about himself. I want you to notice verses 23 through 26. There have never been more beautiful words written than these. Here's what Asa figured out during worship. He said, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know what Asaph realized about himself? He realized that he had the greatest blessing that anybody could ever have. It, it wasn't the, the, the flashy chariots of the wicked. It wasn't their palaces. It wasn't the, it wasn't the, the false honor that was given to, the, to them. What Asaph had was the presence of God in his life. He had God holding him by the right hand. And the assurance that afterward, after this life, God would receive him unto glory. It doesn't get any better than that. And so he was looking around then at the, at the wicked and saying, Man, I've had it good all along. I've had it better than they've ever thought about all along. The greatest of all blessings, the presence of God in his life. He said, you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. You see how worship changed his perspective he came into that experience of worship with a sour attitude, unhappy about his own life, envious of the life of the wicked, and, and somewhat upset with God. Why didn't he do better than that? Why does he do better 
by those of us who are trying to do the right thing. And I'm not just not sure about the about the importance of trying to do the right thing, just you know, seeing how everything all that changed. All that changed. He says, You hold me by your right hand, by my right hand. And afterward you receive me to glory. Let me tell you, folks, worship will do the same for us if we let it. It will alter our perspectives of others. It will alter our perspective of God. It will alter our perspective of ourselves as we lay everything on the altar of God in worship. As we lay out our heart, we pour our hearts out to him in worship. Our perspective will change. Have you ever wondered why we come to church every week? I used to wonder that as a kid. I used to think, why do we, why do we do that? You know, I grew up during the polio era, and, and we got the polio vaccine, and then we got a booster after that, and we were done with it. I thought, why can't church be like that? <laughs> you know, why can't, why can't it be that way? Why don't we just, we, you know, you get inoculated, maybe you get a booster a little bit after that, and then, then you're done. Why is it that once we've worshipped God, we've just worshipped God, we've got everything figured out, we've got our heads on straight, and that's all that we need? Why not just a once-in-a-lifetime event and let that, let that suffice? Well, somebody will answer because the Bible says that we come together on the first day of every week. And that's true, but there's more to it than that. There's more to it than that. William Willimon, who is a professor at Duke Divinity School, tells about years ago visiting, being asked to be guest preacher at an inner-city church in New York City. Poor people, big congregation, and he was delighted to get to go and preach to them. And he said the service lasted four hours. Four hours. He wasn't used to that. He's a Methodist. You know, an hour and ten was running way over for him. Four hours. And so when the service was over, he was talking to the minister of that church, and he says, this is not a criticism. He said, I'm just curious. Why? is the service four hours every week. And the minister of that church said, listen, these people spend all week being beaten down by the world around them, being told that they're worthless, being made to feel like animals because they're treated that way, struggling against things they can't do anything about, feeling helpless, feeling hopeless. And he said, it takes me four hours every week to get that out of them and to get the truth about God into them. It takes four hours. And I don't really think it's any different for us. I don't think you have to be inner city poor folks for that to be the, the case. Do you? I think we all face that challenge. Just think of all the garbage that you're exposed to in the span of just one week. You know, we're exposed to so much of it. Sometimes we don't recognize it for what it is. Just think of all the messages you hear that promote immorality. Just think of all of the uh, pressures that there are in this world to conform to ungodliness. Expressions of doubts about God and about Jesus and about whether or not they really even exist. And if they do, are they really who we've come to believe that they are? Think about all the hateful words and hateful attitudes. The nonstop violence that just seems to crowd into the news every day. Think about, think about the glorifying of greed and selfishness. Think about the idea that you don't matter in this world. 
unless you're rich, beautiful, athletic. And if you are that way, you can be the biggest fool in the world and people will still exalt you. We just get bombarded with that, don't we? We get it all the time. Look at the garbage that comes in as the things that are trending every day. You ever look at that stuff? I used to look at it when I got a phone that had all that on it. And I started looking at it. I thought, this must be important. And then I thought, who really cares if Kanye and Kim kissed each other on the beach? <laughs> Whose life does that change? What difference does that make? It's absolute nonsense. It's ridiculous that people pay any attention to things like that. Those things will make you think that the most trivial nonsense on earth is actually important. We need worship to call us back to reality. We need worship to open our hearts and our minds to what's true. Worship counteracts all that because it helps us get our heads on straight. And God knows that we need that all the time. Worship is a call back to reality. Ray Steadman says that we come to church to have our eyes open to see things as they really are and not as the world says they are. Ben Witherington III says, we have the worm's eye view of reality. That's what you're getting all week, the worm's eye view of reality. And worship gives us the God's eye view of reality. It's the difference between looking at things down here on the ground and looking at them from, from an airplane 30,000 feet up. They look completely different, don't they? They look completely different. We need God's view of reality to, in order to understand how things really are. How does worship do that? Well, just think about it. The Lord's Supper that we just partook of together reminds us that we are not worthless in this world. It reminds us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son for us. It also reminds us that we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And therefore, we have an obligation to glorify God in our bodies. I had that obligation. You had that obligation because we've been bought with a price. And we eat the supper together. And it calls us back to the reality of the cross and the reality of God's love and the reality of our obligation to live in line of the cross. And when we pray together, it reminds us that we, are, we don't face life struggles on our own. We're not alone in this world but that we live by the power of God. And then the songs remind us that God is real. They remind us of who he is, of what he's really like. And so we sing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. All the earth shall praise thy name in heaven and sky and sea. We sing amazing grace. Remind us how amazing it is that this God who made the world cares about us. We sing, Jesus loves me. That very simple song, that very simple message, Jesus loves me. This I know. Because the Bible tells me so. We need to do that. We need to hear that. We need to know that. We sing, thou art worthy, great Jehovah. Thou art worthy, mighty God. Thou art worthy, mighty Father. Thou art worthy, Lamb of God. We sing those songs. We sing, oh, how he loves you and me.
And then we hear the Word of God read and preached. And the Word of God reminds us and calls us back to reality. And in a world that says this whole universe is just an accident. We hear Genesis 1-1 saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the world that says Jesus was just a man, he was just another religious teacher, we read John 1 and verse 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And then we get over to John chapter 3 and verse 16, and we find out that God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then we think, what's our purpose in this world? And Jesus tells us in Matthew 6 and verse 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these other things will be yours as well. You see, Asaph had that perspective all skewed when he's looking at the, the wicked. And he says, they got all the good stuff and I got nothing. And Jesus says, you put God's kingdom first in your life and God will give you everything you need. Matthew 6 and verse 33. And then we read 2 Corinthians 5.10. It reminds us that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive good or evil according to what we've done in the body. Your life matters. What you do matters. All of those are words to live by. You might be thinking, but I already know all that. Why do I need to hear it over and over? Because with all the noise of the world, you easily forget it. With all the noise of the world, those messages somehow become dimmed unless we revive them and we rekindle them every week. And also just knowing it's not living it. Just knowing it isn't living it. There is a constant challenge for all of us. And if you don't know that you need help to meet that challenge and you really just don't understand the situation, we need to know what Asaph came to realize. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is my strength. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Folks, that's reality. That's what worship reminds us of every time, every time, all the time. Now, if worship today and in days past has altered your perspective. If it's caused you to realize, you know, I really am a sinner. I really do need God's forgiveness. I really do need the grace of Christ. I really do need the cleansing power of his blood. Then I want to encourage you to do something about it today. As we said, knowing it's not living it. I want to encourage you to start living it today by confessing your faith in Christ and being baptized into him. And start living that life where you worship him and you praise him. And the more that you do, the more you understand reality. All your perceptions will be changed.
and it'll all be for the better. Let's stand together and sing.